May all that you stand for and that we stand for be preserved under the providence of God for the happiness of mankind. The trouble is caused by unthinking people who carelessly throw away ageless ideals as if they were old and outworn machines. But it is the values of individual liberty, equality before the law and the supremacy of people over the state to which we can always with confidence return as a powerful and uniting force. Australia is not a secular country. It is a free country. G'day and welcome to Pellow Talk. I'm Dave Pellow. And uh, one of the things I love doing is... Uh, learning. Uh, I like my ideas being challenged. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm very strong in my ideas uh, and the things that I believe uh, I'm very convinced and, and sure about and will argue passionately for them. But I want to argue to understand uh, as well as to share truth uh, whenever that's possible. And so one of the things I like doing is hearing from people who disagree with me, especially if they can be civil and, and sincere, bring good faith arguments to it. I'm engaging with heaps of lefties at the moment uh, from America who are just passionate about uh, taking people's guns off them. And, and most of them are bringing really insulting, demeaning, uh, really low quality arguments to the debate. And it really doesn't do anything to engender a conversation or dialogue. The people I want to talk to aren't people necessarily who agree with me. Uh, but people who are going to engage in good faith and, and really say uh, things that can enlighten me. At the end of the day, this is something I want to endorse to you as well, uh, because if you don't understand your uh, opponent's ideology, if you don't understand their arguments at least as good as them, if not better than them, uh, then you actually don't understand the strength of your own position, and you might be wrong. And if your position hasn't been tested, hasn't been critiqued really, really well, uh, then you really have no right to be confident in your position. Uh, and you should feel comfortable to be confident if you're constantly comfortable to be challenged. And one of the people who I trust a lot to challenge me and argue with me, because uh, I, I find him not riding a, a partisan or, or ideological horse uh, into any kind of contest, just genuinely trying to think about things as objectively as possible, is Dr. Jonathan Cole. Now, let me see if I can tell you a little bit about him. Uh, from He was one of the speakers at this year's Church and State Summit. Uh, and listen to this. Uh, Dr. Jonathan Cole is a scholar, writer, translator, commentator, lecturer, and speaker specializing in political theology. That's the intersection between religion and politics. He's the host of the Political Animals podcast, honest conversations about the political, theological and cultural ideas that shape who we are in the 21st century. Jonathan has a PhD in political theology and MA in Islamic theology and Middle Eastern politics and a Bachelor of Arts with honours in modern Greek language and history. He spent 13 years working in a number of Australian federal government departments and agencies in Canberra, including seven years in intelligence most recently as a senior terrorism analyst. Jonathan, always great to have you on Pillow Talk and welcome back. Thank you. It's Thank great you. to be with you, Dave. Now, one of the things I like doing, uh, you've just heard my intro, I like reading your Facebook posts, uh, which are sometimes um, duplicated, if short, on on Twitter. So wherever I, I catch you, it's, it's great. And 
Um, I wish I could listen to more episodes of the P Political Animals podcast. I'm actually keen to go back and listen to the one about women in ministry, which I, I'm sure you will uh, handle uh, as even-handedly as, as possible. But um, let's have a chat about some of the things which uh, have piqued my interest uh, recently on your Facebook page. We're going to move through uh, two or three topics uh, and for those people watching on YouTube or on Facebook, uh, we're going to keep this uh, video on this platform nice and short. But if you want to see the full conversation, which will probably go for about an hour, head over to the website goodsource.news and uh, we'll be having the full discussion uh, there. So some of the topics I want to chat to Jonathan about are these. Uh, and the first one is the plausibility of Australia's freedom movement? Um, did it affect some change and, and was it successful overall? Uh, also the topic of the concept of anti-elitism. We, we in the right wing often talk about elites and we're talking about the World Economic Forum and the United Nations and those people who think they're so much better than us that they should be telling us how to live and what to do, uh, throwing away tradition and everything else like that. We're going to have a chat to Jonathan about whether that um, attitude is always as useful as we think it is. Uh, also, we're going to chat about this post from a week ago saying that uh, the Liberal Party failed uh, because um, it underestimated the Conservative base. But are freedom voters and Conservatives overestimating the Conservative base in Australia? I'll have a chat with Jonathan about that. And we're also possibly, if we have any time left in an hour, going to talk about uh, radical secularists' uh, rabid hatred for Christians and religions in the uh, in the political sphere. Sound good, Jonathan? <laughs> Sounds good. Sounds good. I was waiting when your um, your your famed rhetoric was going to make its first appearance. So I'm, I'm glad to hear it early. <laughs> I'm just waiting for the light, the uh, lying harlot press to make an appearance. But there, there you go. The lying it, harlot but... media, Jonathan. <laughs> oh, sorry, lying harlot lying media. Harlot. Harlot Media. <laughs> uh, that's that's it. Uh, is my rhetoric famed? Is it? <laughs> wow. I, you know, I, I think you're, you're partly known for your uh, flamboyant, shall we say, uh, <laughs> bit of a brand. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. There we go. Uh, you're making me blush, laughing at myself. Um, well, let's uh, let's have a look at this uh, first one from you. Um, and in it, you say. Uh, while I think it's plausible that Australia's freedom movement affected some policy change in New South Wales and Victoria over the last 12 months, I think it's fair to declare it a political failure on the basis of the recent election. Here's why I think it failed. Um, one, it didn't have big numbers to begin with. Participants in the movement out of a mixture of exuberance and wishful thinking grossly overestimated its numbers. And for every active participant, there were several lukewarm supporters. And for every lukewarm supporter... There were many quiet critics and opponents, as well as many indifferent. I don't want to read the whole post. Let's actually go through this. If we need to take more than 15, 20 minutes on this, um, then I'm okay with that because this is really, I think, something to sink our teeth into, although we won't get bogged down. I would like to get to the other ones. Uh, so the freedom movement, Jonathan, you've been a freedom observer. You've... Um, basically, I guess, sympathetic with some of the... And why don't I let you describe uh, your position um, rather than, than putting words in your mouth, possibly? Yeah, yeah, sure. Look, I'm a philosophical conservative, but not a partisan conservative. That's, a, I know, a painful distinction, and we can go into that if 
there are two of your listeners or viewers who, are, who have the interest. So just, just to sort of transparently say where I'm coming at this from, I'm deeply sympathetic with some to the extent that I can understand what the, <laughs> the message or desires of the movement were, particularly on mandates, which I think on the whole were both unjust and unnecessary and still are where they are. In force, I think there's much to criticise in Australia's COVID response. We could get into the nitty-gritty of lockdowns. A lot of the key signature policies, at the very least, are contentious and debatable, and it's questionable Mm. how effective they were on one point or the other. But I wasn't a participant in the movement for an active participant for reasons we can get into as well, if that's of interest to anyone but my well, if brief so, touch on them well briefly why why not if uh, freedom was part, important and you thought it was being transgressed a little well partly it, it is really there's a, a very sort of boring practical reason which is just I'm way too busy <laughs> to get involved uh you know doing the podcast working as an academic family life and the rest of it so that's the sort of boring reason which i know for the true believers is is not only boring it's a pathetic reason not to get involved which leads me to the other reason and this is a a personal thing and this goes to one of the reasons i think it it failed ultimately and that is that it too many what i would call cranks got involved and became too prominent too early on and this always happens in every nascent political movement in my in my view because a lot of the most politically engaged active and motivated are prone to conspiratorial thinking, um, obsessions on specific issues that most people are not interested in, and just with all kinds of weird uh, agendas. And this is a risk for all nascent political movement movements yep. because these people are early adopters. And this is not a left-right point. You get them uh, in every sort of political movement and ideology. And there's a choice then very early on in the movement, which is a very difficult choice, and that is do suppress marginalize and try and evict these voices in view of trying to make the movement have the widest appeal possible in order to get out of the margins into something big or do you embrace these people but do so in the knowledge that that's going to limit you to a relatively small constituency now this is just a personal thing and it's a matter of conscience and i think conscience is an important dictator of your politics and if it's and not and that's exactly what everybody in the freedom movement is fighting for uh, is well, that yeah. of conscience so that you can act according to your will. So for somebody to condemn you for following your conscience now uh, is, it would be hypocritical. Um, and I can Not actually, that, but if, with if you don't understand how powerful conscience is and the fact that it is, it does do a kind of trauma to go against your conscience and this doesn't just apply to vaccines and mandates. This goes for <laughs> right across the political Spectrum. It's a really good point, Jonathan. And I certainly, re- I, I, I respect most those who, who are led by conscience in their politics, even if it leads them to a polar opposite position from me. Yeah. And I say that because there are a lot of people involved in politics who have no conscience on both sides. These are your kind of exploiters and your hucksters, your shysters, yeah. whatever. Now, just this is this is my personal conscience. I'm, you know. I, I'm not a fan of what I call conspiracism, which is a bit of an academic term. And for me, I can't get involved in the movement that has lots of voices that in my heart of hearts, I know to be not only wrong, 
but to have what I would call dangerous ideas were they to be accepted widely. And so my conscience doesn't actually allow me to stand shoulder to shoulder with those those people. Now, I, I'm, I can respect people whose conscience allows them to do that because there are two, there's a fork in the road here. This is all mm. about to get metaphysical on <laughs> conscience. But that my, my opposition, if you like, to what I consider just bad thinking, which I think has social consequences, is a game stopper for me. But for other people, they can overlook that again out of conscience because of the greater because their conscience is so strong on whatever whatever it is that's motivating them so for yep. example it might be they might be on mandates and so they're willing to listen to a whole bunch of stuff about the world health organization and secret changes to the constitution and stuff to do with corporations and the definition of persons and the pandemic and this on the vaccine and that and the other you end up with the whole cacophony but the point is we all have to make these conscience uh choices but just to finish off that earlier earlier thought uh just or not earlier thought but just that preamble about my interest in the movement my day job really is a political analyst and let me be the first to say that i actually think this was a very significant political movement in the history of australia because yep. how often do we see I know it wasn't exclusively right-wing, but let's say predominantly, how often do we see predominantly right-wing, grassroots-led, citizen-led protest organisations that are national? Yeah. This is quite a significant phenomenon that deserves to be studied, understood, because it tells us something interesting about Australian society and the political, political moment that we're in, or at least it should be for anyone who is interested in understanding our political experience. Yep. I likewise, um, there was a, a lot of what I call low quality thinking um, that I witnessed in the freedom movement. Um, and it's very hard as a champion of freedom and liberty and, and ideals which are frequently uh, labeled conservative or, or libertarian. It, it's very hard to, I guess, speak to those people and, and say, look, everything you're fighting for is right, um, but some of you uh, are following leaders and regurgitating what they say without actually thinking about it carefully enough. Um, there was a lot of people who, who sprung up um, and essentially offered dog whistles. Um, they would just, it, it was red meat um, that they were throwing out. Um, and, and yeah, look, I didn't distance myself from the movement at all. Um, and, and like you, I was fully engaged in, in politics um, in a way that I have been for many years and like you for many years as well. Um, I did attend some protests. Um, and there were definitely some people there um, that I'd be happy to break bread with but wouldn't have much in common with, uh, you know, the the smoking ceremonies and the syncretistic false religions that were going on were something I wasn't comfortable with. And at the same time, I thought, look, you know what, I think I just have to tolerate this for the sake of pursuing the, the bigger objective. Um, so, uh, you, know what, Dave, yeah. oh, you know what I'd say? It, at the end of the day, all politics involves compromise. People, And yeah. we, we all know that happens in the parliament, okay? There's mm. compromise to get policies through legislation, preference votes. We know all that. But mm. 
even individual citizens in our own political philosophies, ideologies, policy preferences, approaches, relationships, you have to make some compromises just like you do in all life. I mean, a marriage only works if there's a bit of give and take, right? Right. I mean, you can't find someone that is your ideological mirror <laughs> with whom to have a perfect yeah. marriage. And so I think there, are, there are, there's a compromise choice here for those of us, let's say, who start sympathetic to the whole yeah. mandate issue. And yeah. that is you either, such as in your case, and I think I, personally I think both of these are respectable. People might disagree, but that's just me. So you can make one compromise, which is, okay, I'm going to overlook paganistic, heretical stuff for me as a Christian, if that's your thing, or some tactics that I completely disagree or some with or some rhetoric I'm uncomfortable with or some agendas I don't like, that's fine. Or you make yep. the other compromise, which is the one I made, and I did do some stuff on mandates in terms of speaking out and in my own place of in employment. I'm not saying they were great things, but I did, I did try to speak up and do Go some ahead. things in my own context, but... The compromise I made was I was to do less, <laughs> because quite frankly, quite frankly, I couldn't live with myself making that other compromise because I don't. These aren't sort of objective philosophical points. These are very personal, subjective yeah. compromises that we all have to make, and, and we're all judged and, by. And you know what? One of the compromises I made, and to a large extent still do, is to not not tackle some of the uh, quite um, low-quality strategies and theories um, that are present in the, you know, collective uh, freedom movement. Um, there's some really low-quality ideas in there that are, are just not worth fighting for. They're just a complete waste of time, won't ever achieve anything and have very little merit in, in their first instance. Um, but it's it's just not a hill worth dying on because so many people will will tune out and stop listening altogether uh, for that very reason that um, I actually want to continue talking about your Facebook post, uh, those thoughts that you had there in the first place, and that is that they're not very good at hearing criticism. They're not very good at, um, uh, you know, essentially right-wing people can be just as prone to build and insulate an echo chamber as as the people on on the left wing. Um, let's get back to your post um, and just talk about your first point. Um, one of the things I guess we'll, we'll use a collective term uh, loosely: freedom people. Um, one of the things freedom people frequently got wrong was grossly overestimating how many people um, were there in in the movement um that essentially it wasn't as big as we thought uh, your thoughts on that yeah and and i'll go further dave and say not just in the movement however we define that perhaps we could take some easy standards of definition here someone who has turned up to a protest or done something active to support it or perhaps spoken out publicly in support of it or help bankroll if, uh, to some extent the activities, uh, not only that, I think there was an overestimation of the quiet supporters who either were unable or unwilling to get fully on board, but who might be sympathetic to the message and thus there to be one as supporters in some context. I th And I think this had consequences 
because it then feeds into the political calculations. And this is my impression from the outside, so I could be wrong, but it looked like um, there was this excitement about a kind of wave of disaffected coalition voters that were going to park their votes very strongly with minor parties championing the freedom issue, which would have some kind of appreciable electoral impact in the federal election, which I think uh, we can say with some confidence is not what actually translated in the end. I had, let me give you one anecdotal experience I had, which was, which for me perf perfectly epitomizes the freedom movement. I, I met a lovely Christian man in Brisbane who had attended the, the Canberra rally. And this for him was an extremely meaningful spiritual experience. And I don't doubt that for a second. I mean, I could see the effect literally imprinted on his face. And I, th I think memory serves correctly. He said this, he was an older guy. This was the most significant thing he'd ever done in his life. This goes to my point of not underestimating the significance, notwithstanding what I, Correct, I, yeah. I asserted as political failure. This, this is something that should write history books about and analyze. And we shouldn't even necessarily close the door entirely on this, this movement, that there's something there political, politically that could emerge or develop into something. But uh, this guy told me, someone that's lived in Canberra for 21 years, I live close to the centre of Canberra where a lot of the action was. He mm -hmm. said, oh, look, 900,000 people descended on Canberra. And I didn't have the heart to tell him because I didn't, I didn't want to have a debate with someone who had had this amazing spiritual experience because, I mean, I'm not, <laughs> yeah. I'm not against the movement by any stretch of the imagination. But Canberra has a population of about 430,000. I've been there 21 years. This is one of the biggest events I've seen. I'm not even sure it's the biggest. I've been to some big Anzac uh, parades, just judging by traffic and the number of people I've seen. But you think about it, that that's twice the entire population of Canberra apparently entering and being able to somehow be accommodated in this city. You wouldn't even be able to move down a single road if 900,000 people... I think most of them that. were camping. Well, yeah. Now, again, I'm not saying it was insignificant. I think, actually, by Australian standards, that was a very big protest. And when was the last national protest of any significance in the mm. nation's capital involved. I think there Australia. were even some uh, lying harlot media reporters <laughs> <There we go. laughs> uh, who uh, who commented that this is the biggest protest they'd ever seen. Yeah, I mean, that this, this was on any standard. This is really my point. We don't have to inflate, like, the numbers there, I'm certain, were not even in the same galaxy as 900,000. That doesn't mean it wasn't a Yeah, big... I heard some people say a million. I mean... Let's say it was 50,000. That is a bloody big protest in Canberra. Yeah. That's 50,000 people on top of 430,000 representing every corner of Australia. But the problem is once, once, you, once you start going down this path of thinking that the, the level of support is bigger, and let's face it, if 900,000 people turned up, then you, you could reasonably assume there might be 2 million, 2, 3, 4 million more people out there who couldn't turn up but might be supportive. Yep. And, I, and I think actually the election gave us a truer picture of the number of what I would call true believers. Yep. I mean, there are other factors at play here too. And I, yep. and I think I think there was, you know, I put it down in the post to what I call over-exuberance. I think this is yep. a natural thing. You're in the middle of the protest. It seems enormous. 
and it's a it's a, an amazing moment of connection and for you it's an incredibly significant event in your life and no one can take yeah. that away and this is why i keep coming back to this point that this i just sit, sit outside of ideology for a moment this is a really yeah. significant thing in australia and, 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 it, and it is possibly actually a turning point we might say in 10 20 years time even if the free, freedom movement is completely fizzles out it may sow the seeds for some political developments some wider generational shifts in the attitude to government for yeah. example Let's move on with a, a little bit more momentum. Um, uh, we've, we've talked about the second point really in your introduction. That was why you exercised your conscience as you did. So I'll just read point two and then we'll move on to point three. Um, what you essentially were summarizing at the beginning was that it attracted too many cranks and this limited the movement to the true believers whose strength of conviction allowed them to break bread with people motivated by every conspiracy theory and eccentric political obsession in existence which ostracized potential supporters, relegating the movement to the fringes. And, and I agree with that. I, I probably don't like, I don't think, I think that the phrase conspiracy theory has probably outworn its usefulness uh, given how frequently the theories are, are proven um, or at least the things which are initially labeled as conspiracy theories by the, uh, you know, the, the lying harlot media, um, they're, the the things that you know the the time of frame to which those things come to pass is, is shrinking rapidly however it doesn't mean they don't exist um there really are some wild fantasies um which exist um and and they're not conspiracies they they're just they're just really wild and fantastic and, and very poorly substantiated um and, you know some things get claimed over and over and over and no one ever asks them to pr please provide evidence and they're like oh no trust me it'll come to pass you just wait and watch this space i can't reveal my sources right now it's um you know, that that kind of and we as thinking voters uh and and this is what i want to encourage everybody to be you know raise the raise the tide level on this and and let's just become a little bit more questioning of people on our side and, and demand better of ourselves but let's go to point three you made um, lack of unified leadership. The movement needed to coalesce around a single charismatic leader who could unite the disparate interests and forces that animated it. There were a couple of contenders, but these pretty quickly ended up in conflict and ultimately factionalism, and that became an obstacle to the movement's growth and effective. Um, just enlarge on that a little bit for me, please. Yeah, I, I feel like this is the harshest criticism. That is, I feel bad for making this one because... One of the virtues of this move, movement, it seems to me, is it's completely organic, citizen-led, driven. You know, the political parties come in later <laughs> on top mm. to try and get involved and, in my view, leverage and exploit the movement. These are people who haven't necessarily gone to protests before, been involved in politics. And so it's, it's a bit harsh to say, well, you know, it's all, all well and good to say you needed a charismatic leader. And I stand by that objectively. That's what every political movement needs. And you, you can't survive for too long without one. And particularly with competing figures with such a diverse agenda as this movement, it seemed to me, uh, had. So I'm not, I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not even saying that this was some opportunity that this organic movement should have magically just what sat around with 50,000 people and voted on a, an executive or something. It doesn't work like that, I, I know. But the point is, 
no political movement can survive long term or grow or really be effective, in my view, in the electoral process unless it can get a unity of message, a clear chain of leadership. And ideally, if you're a grassroots movement, you need a Donald Trump. Now, I'm personally not a fan of Donald Trump, but he's an exemplar here. There was this popular sentiment in the US, right, that was Mm. widespread and deep-seated. But in my view, it would have gone nowhere without a Donald Trump, some giant figure that could really get the allegiance of this particular constituency, guide and direct it and put it it into some kind of political program. Now, I know that that will... probably warm some people's hearts and, you know, make other people faint, depending on your view of... I think those two are actually very symbiotic. Uh, Donald Trump would have been nobody without the deep-seated grassroots movement that he represented. He ended up just being um, the, uh, yeah, the the figurehead for something that already existed. He didn't create it. He he just uh, unified it, and, and to your point. Yeah, and he wasn't really of the movement, let's face it. He wasn't a sort of a working-class white guy from a Rust Belt town somewhere in flyover country. He, mm. He's the opposite of a populist guy, but he had one amazing virtue that worked for this moment. He was a political outsider. He was not part of the political class. He was not right. part of the establishment. He didn't have a record of you know corruption, whatever, in the Republican Party or the Democratic Party. And this particular constituency in the US was crying out for someone to come in and do something about these elites that were not speaking for them, not even speaking to them, not even speaking a language they could comprehend anymore. I think what this movement needed, and this is not what it got actually, once the sort of marginal political players jumped in the picture in my view, it needed someone from within the movement. And there were some people with a lot of talent involved but for whatever reason the movement was unable to coalesce again around someone and maybe there was a reluctance on the part of certain people to take on that leadership role and again this comes back to (laughs) the fact that these people aren't necessarily looking to get into politics or form a political party Mm. this goes back to the virtue i said that this is a genuine grassroots citizen-led movement but while that's a, a virtue in that it makes it um if you like, an authentic expression of one part of the Australian community and its sentiment, its feelings and its frustrations, it doesn't lend itself actually (laughs) to Mm. what's needed, which is a strong leader who can say, okay, guys and girls, look, I know you have these 100 issues you're interested in. We are just going to fight for mandates and nothing else right now. You You want to go talk about other stuff, go do it on Facebook. But at these rallies... We've got one message because That's we need to send a clear right, message to the politicians. Yep. And we need to open up this movement so that those other people who are concerned about mandates or might be willing to hear an argument on them might get on board. Because unless you crack out of the margin and the fringe into the mainstream, the best you'll ever do is maybe one or two senators if you're really lucky on a good day where the wind's blowing right. You're 100% right. And this is a secret that the major parties know. And I know from the campaigns I've been in in major parties, um, if they've got uh, 40 members of parliament um, or, or, you know, 50, 60, 70, then um, the media will only publish the person who says one thing different from if 69 of 70 people are saying apples are red 
and then one person comes out and says, uh, yes, but uh, watermelons are green on the outside and red to the core, then the, the message that the party was trying to get across with 69 people will be ignored by the media and they will look for the sensation. Um, and, and that's exactly what these other issues, I won't even demean them by calling them fringe issues, which some of them are, but uh, any other issue, legitimate legitimacy doesn't matter. It just confuses the message, dilutes the effectiveness. And, and, and I saw the media reports and you saw the media reports which basically said, uh, there's a heap of people here. This is an impressive protest, but many people are here for many different reasons. Um, I heard the media observe that, and, and that's um, totally to your point. And I think, Dave, the message was very confusing for the average punter who, true, the message is mediated through the media, so that there's a bias there, of course, but... You know, when they see just looking at the symbols and the signs, I think it was very confusing for people what exactly the protest was about. And even more critically, what, what is the action mm. <laughs> that these people want to see yep. right now articulated uh, clearly? And I, and I know, again, I feel harsh. I'm, I'm certain there were people who got up on stages and actually did precisely that. And I know some people who yep. are very intelligent and very capable communicators who did do that. But then the, the next guy gets up and says something completely different. And then the next guy gets up <laughs> and does something different. And then when the camera pans around, you've got all kinds of bizarre flags no one's seen and you've got strange strange messages that don't really seem to cohere. Yeah. But if I could just make one observation, because, again, I keep saying I'm I'm being harsh because I'm looking at this a bit like a political scientist, I guess, when really that's that's to demand something that is is almost impossible with this kind of movement. Because I think it was a unique moment coming out of a couple of years of extreme trauma from COVID and COVID policies. Yeah, and this was a nat was naturally a magnet for every frustration there was. Yeah. And so there's yeah. lots of people who are frustrated, but they're frustrated for different reasons. Yes, yeah. it's, it's not that the re the reasons are like chalk and cheese necessarily yeah. but people have different concerns desires agendas the common thread here is frustration that's what gets people out into the yep. into the streets right um well number four you've we've sort of talked about or alluded to and i'm going to skip over it again so we'll just read it briefly the movement was co-opted by existing minor parties with a demonstrated record of electoral ineffectiveness uh, we have to be honest about that the marginal figures within the coalition who lacked any influence within their own parties also jumped on the bandwagon. The freedom movement, uh, which sounds, I don't mean to be cynical about that. We all really appreciate the coalition members who who jumped in, but the, the obse observation is um, they weren't mainstream. They were already sidelined by the party and by the lying harlot media. The freedom movement was a genuine grassroots citizen-led initiative, and as such, it needed its own fresh political brand. That's a new political party or network of freedom independence, a la Teals, who could run against the system as genuine political outsiders. I think your uh, next two points are fairly good. So let's talk about them together as much as we can without mm -hmm. um, move, before we move on to the next, um, and that is... Uh, point five and six, freedom simply wasn't a big election issue. Uh, and point six um, is that uh, the vast majority of Australians um, are actually not uncomfortable 
um, with an, uh, an oppressive level of authoritarianism. Um, so, Jonathan, explain to me why you think freedom wasn't a big election issue, because some people will uh, disagree. I think the timing here was unfortunate for the f- freedom movement. I think had that big culminating protest in Canberra occurred on the eve of the national election, there's no mm-hmm. guarantee, but it, there would have been a lot more potential for electoral success because you imagine all of the imagery, it would have, the issue would have just been front and centre in the election campaign. All the major parties would have had to respond to the, the freedom movement. I, I think by the time the election came around, I genuinely think most Australians had simply moved on from COVID entirely. Now, of course, if you're in the freedom movement, there is no moving on and people are blind to the fact that there are still mandates and the people that lost their jobs have still <laughs> lost their jobs. Yeah. So you, you have a, 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 a small consist, constituency which are a kind of COVID remnant in a strange way in that they're still suffering. They're, su- they're suffering from certain parts of the COVID experience which are unique, particularly for the unvaccinated. Hmm. That goes on while the rest of the country, you know, the mask mandates are gone. Uh, some of the actual work mandates have gone in places like where I live in the ACT. People are back in the office. They're going to cafes. They're going to the nightclubs. They're back in churches and even singing, which is incredible because we know singing is the most dangerous thing you can do during COVID in church, of course. I don't need to tell you that, Dave. But I just think uh, for most people who had moved on, and I think you, I think the major parties, let's face it, if they're polling, if they're sort of internal polling was saying 50% of people are thinking freedom, 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 that would have been a central election issue. But it was fought on cost of living, some foreign policy issues, economic policy, integrity, climate, a whole bunch of topics that had nothing to do with COVID. So I think the major political parties all moved on. And I don't, I don't think they would have or could have moved on if the majority of the electorate hadn't moved on because yep. these parties are, are very reactive to polling and they, they desperately want to know what people are thinking. It's not that they're just led by what people are thinking, but they're not going to talk about an issue that I think you, you right Australians are worried about. It's a huge criticism, certainly, that I... Let me, let me say, if nobody else has heard anybody else say, you've heard me say... Um, Scotty the Windsock, hashtag Scotty the Windsock, because he's the guy who uh, wants, and he's just emblematic of exactly what you're talking about. It's a political, cultural thing that um, they want to be ruled by the polling. Uh, they're not leading, they're just following from the front. It's, it's, it's a well-known thing. So, I mean, we have to concede the point you're making that uh, if the polling reflected uh, a deep concern and a widespread concern uh, with lockdowns and mandates, um, then they would have there would have been more rhetoric and, and propaganda about that. Uh, the two observations I would make, and I don't think it's cynical, I think they're fair, is one that we saw the Labor governments and around the, the states uh, basically <laughs> try and end as much of the discomfort as possible a month or two before the election. They wanted this out of people's memory, knowing that most voters have very short memories. And two, uh, I know um, politicians who believe they don't just follow polling, and I've heard them say out loud in public, on the record, that they 
absolutely will be led by whatever narrative and agenda the media sets. And the media was not at all on the side of, of freedom. Um, so, yeah. Uh, talk about your fourth point, uh, which was that, uh, sorry, your final point, that um, the vast majority of Australians either approve of or are willing to cop the actions of their governments. Yeah, look, what's the story of the last two years at the state and territory level? Every state and territory government responsible for extraordinary coercive measures to combat COVID were returned sometimes with smashing victories, as we saw in WA. And the compliance level in Australia, I think, was extremely high when it came to sort of COVID provisions. And so I think this reveals a lot about Australian political culture, temperament, if you like. And I think it makes a lot of sense when you think about it, not only historically. I mean, when you start as a penal colony and your first subjects, as they were then, are sent here against their will on an, what, an 11-month voyage to come to a land that they don't, don't know obviously inhabited but we just ignored that that fact extreme hardship and they're run by a military government effectively they don't get enfranchised for a long time that you couldn't have a more opposite beginning to america which is the land of liberty and freedom mm. and so it's not surprising that freedom liberty has never really been one of the emblematic concepts that define australia the other thing is Maybe this goes back to our convict coercive origins, if I can say that. But Australia has a long history of deep government intervention. And again, if I can make a contrast with America, in a way that it would be unusual in America. And this isn't new in COVID, in, in my view. And the, the more I think about this, the more I think the COVID response actually fits a pattern, to be honest. So you look at smoking. We put insane amounts of taxes on uh, you can't advert the tobacco advertising. When did that go in the nineties? Do you remember the Benson and Hedger Benz, what was yeah. it? Benson and Hedger's one day test match. Yeah. Back when we were probably kids, Dave. And then then you couldn't smoke inside any space. And then you had to go however many hundreds of meters away from the the entrance. And there's all these smoking ads to tell you to quit. Same thing with gambling, alcohol, seatbelts, the way you drive on the on the road. The you look at the way our, our roads are policed and have yeah. been long before COVID. Speed cameras here, speed cameras there. Uh, you know, signs, read this sign, you're going to die, that kind of stuff. So, yeah. I mean, this is, this is ingrained. This is something that actually is a defining characteristic of Australian political culture. And then you add to that high levels of trust in government. And I know people in the freedom movement will say, well, that, that's, that's because people are... They're blind, they're hoodwinked, whatever. But I, but I think if I could put my political science hat on, I think there are actually reasons why that we have higher levels of trust in government institutions and some other comparable democracies. And that is actually we have a very functional public service by international standards. And if you've travelled <laughs> to a lot of countries, you realise actually for every problem in our public serv service, it's actually pretty competent as far as it yeah. goes relatively low levels of sort of personal corruption in our politics. Uh, and I know, you know, 
there's someone right now throwing their shoe at the screen saying this this out of touch idiot can't see the corruption but i'm i'm sorry there, there are countries where where your ministers are making billions of dollars you look at putin's russia the great freedom guy <laughs> i mean this guy is just raping the country country along with his oligarchs we don't have that kind of situation in australia in australia unlike a place like greece you don't need to give the doctor a little envelope with some money to make sure you get proper treatment people have no idea what corruption is if they think um that's our problem i'm not saying there's corruptions ab absent i want people to hear me i'm saying we have relatively low levels of corruption by international standards and all of yeah. this and also we haven't had a history of extreme political conflict like civil wars and that kind of thing and so i guess what i'm saying is as frustrating as it is it's not crazy or unreasonable for your average Australian who's probably not p p uh, politically minded anyway, just wants to get on with their life to trust the government. Because what, what's the reason why they wouldn't trust the government? So when the government comes in and says, well, we've got to imprison you in your home for three months to save however many thousands of people might, might die, uh, predominantly elderly people, I'm sorry to yeah. say, uh, they say, well, I mean, this government has never, you know, I don't live in a country where if I'm pulled over by the police, I literally wet myself because I don't know if I'm going to be robbed, killed, raped. I mean, that happens in, in many parts of the world. So I think, I think this is my interpretation of what happened with the freedom movement. I think the freedom movement, this is why I say it could potentially be very significant because I think for the first time, a small minority of Australians, if you like, have got out of our normal cultural stream. <laughs> and this is what is new, actually. Yes. I mean, the very notion that there is a freedom movement in Australia is unprecedented and, in my view, historical. Uh, this, like the Americans looking on going, you know, <laughs> you're only just discovering freedom now? Well, yes, this has not been a big political issue yep. in Australia. And, yes, we look like a socialist uh, commie country to them because freedom yep. is is in their blood and it's and it's a big issue. So... Longer yep. term, this is like a new branch out of a stream, and who knows where that will that will go. But I think that is something genuinely new in Australia, and I think this was a sort of great awakening moment where, again, I think it's a, a relatively small minority, but not an insignificant minority, yeah. who for whom they realise actually this traditional Australian culture I'm talking about is not good. And so they, they have, if you like, rejected, reacted <laughs> against yep. this deep culture we're all instilled in. And who knows what the potential of that is longer term. Yeah, I'm, I'm, in, I'm actually encouraged by this. Um, and this is one thing that I, I tried to encourage my audience or anybody that was listening, just friends, colleagues, people I was in conversation with before the election. And when they're talking about, you know, hopeful outcomes and and I'm like, you know what? There is no good outcome in this election. Liberal Party or Labor Party, we end up with an authoritarian government. Um, the best thing I thought we could get uh, out of the election was was pruning the Liberal Party, Party tree of its deadwood, um, those far-left people who never should have been in a right-of-centre party to begin with. Um, and that requires um, some tolerance for the pain of a unsuccessful liberal campaign in, in this election. Uh, and, and to the point of what you're talking about, uh, there is hope for a future if we look beyond the horizon, beyond that election 
um, right in, in front of our noses or now right behind us. Um, but if we look to maybe the 10-year prospect, if freedom voters can not be dismayed or disengaged uh, by uh, the outcome from one election and instead look to the example of the Frankfurt School uh, and, you know, the, the social progressiveness of, of uh, cultural Marxism since the 50s through the 60s and 70s and, and its advent to now complete saturation and, and a successful march through the institutions, their strategy was always... Uh, they promoted it, they said it, they did it, and they succeeded. It was always long-term. Um, and if it takes us 70 years, uh, we need people who are just as determined and patient um, who will continue moving in that direction. So I, I'm in, encouraged by what you've observed in all of the, the criticisms that are fair and we need to learn from if we're going to be successful ever um, is the fact that, you know, what this is right uh, protesting is a left-wing thing to do. Right-wing people are conservative. We stay at home. We don't get out on the streets. Um, Christians especially, you know, uh, industrialised child sacrifice in our nation isn't a reason to <laughs> go and, and march in protest. We're very accommodating and, and tolerant of all kinds of injustice and wickedness, and yet we saw definitely hundreds of thousands of people around the nation uh, get together and and say enough is enough. We want change. We're not going to be quiet any longer. Um, and maybe we're not the quiet majority or the silent majority. Maybe we're the noisy minority. Um, but it's a place to start and, and build from. Um, let's. Uh, uh, can can I just uh, offer one reflect. observation? This is unsolicited, and thereby possibly unwanted. <laughs> uh, Advice. I trust your sincerity, the, if nothing else. For the freedom movement. I mean, look, personally, I think the movement needs to ditch this idea Australia is an authoritarian country. Uh, you are not going to convince the majority of Australians. Not as long as there's a North Korea and a China and a Russia on this planet. Uh, what the movement should do is simply focus on freedom and selling the virtues of freedom and trying to convince Australians they don't have as much freedom as they could and should. But... Yeah. To, to try and convince them that they have no freedom to begin with is the wrong way around here. And you're going to waste a whole bunch of energy convincing people, trying to convince something of people. I, in, this is my humble opinion. You are not going to convince enough people of that. What you can potentially convince them of is, look, freedom. freedoms are something you can't take for granted. We just saw through COVID how they were removed like that. Yeah. Like extraordinary. Like like a level of lack of freedom that that is not only on par with North Korea, but might exceed it in some cases. Yes, it was a crisis event, but yep. it shows how easy it is for yep. government and how much power they have. And therefore, what you should be selling people is on the need to be vigilant and to constantly fight to maintain freedom. But that that doesn't that it's not necessary in order to do that, to convince people they're living yeah, in, look, Jonathan, in a style you... of totalitarianism. I, I think... I think you're absolutely right, um, and I don't agree that we're not an authoritarian country because I don't think it's a Boolean proposition, one or zero, uh, authoritarian or free. Um, there's definitely uh, places that make us look like a free country, such as North Korea and, and uh, China, 
Um, but that doesn't mean there's not a, a spectrum on which those countries are, are too far to the end of evil. Um, and, you know, the ideal kind of God-designed kingdom of justice and liberty and, and righteousness and peace and wisdom and truth um, at, at the other end, it doesn't mean we're not too far along that spectrum, even though miles away from the complete other one. So where you're absolutely um, unimpeachably correct is we can lose, we can win the argument over whether we're authoritarian or not, but we will lose the war of trying to persuade people um, that we're right and and Australia is authoritarian. Um, it, it's it is a hard sell uh, because people just don't want to see it. They do see those extreme examples um, and they just tune out. And but I know he's this is the key point, Dave. It's not just that they don't see it. If I may, that's that's a freedom perspective. They don't feel it. That's why you can't convince them. Because You're right. They, they walk around, they go to the restaurant, they buy what yep. they want, they see their friends, they shop, they got a job. Yep. They, um, you know, vent their spleen on Facebook and Twitter and they do this and yep. they're free to walk yep. around. The police don't harass them. Yep. They don't feel it. I mean, there was somebody who I responded to beneath uh, one of your posts who said, we're the freest we've ever been in 200 years or that he thought other people might think that. Um, I'm not sure if it was a personal thought or not. <laughs> and I'm like, well, we're not allowed to go to school, not allowed to go to work, not allowed to go to church, uh, not allowed to go more than five kilometers from our home sometimes. This is the freest we've ever been. Um, you know, but you're right. If they're not feeling it themselves, if their job isn't lost, um, then... And this is why, Dave, I think, if I may, again, I'm, <laughs> I'm showering you and your audience in you know, free and possibly unwanted advice. But... I think on a serious note, I think there's been a misdiagnosis of the moment here. And, and it's important to get the conceptuality and the categories right, particularly if you want to convince the maximum number of people. I don't actually think this was an authoritarian turn in Australia. I think that's a misdiagnosis. The instinct is right. I just think they've got the diag they've articulated it incorrectly. What the they showed was how precarious freedom is and that whilst you can live in a free democracy, and this is what people didn't realise, a democratically elected government has the legislative power and authority and state apparatuses in the form of police forces to take away your freedom in an instant. That's yep. what people didn't realise. That's what new. Most of those measures have disappeared. But what we've learnt is they can come anytime, any moment. That's what the freedom movement should be selling, in my humble opinion, because I just don't think you can convince those people who really don't feel oppressed that they're oppressed. Like, it's just, it's not a good good tactic, in my view. Uh, man, if we're not... Hey, I, I'm, I'm not even in the movement, so I'm not a leader. <laughs> if we're not prepared to take notes um, on improving our strategy and tactics after a devastating display of ineffectiveness, um, then we might as well just go to the beach uh, because we're not going to achieve anything by repeating the same um, failure of, of, of patterns, um, the same pattern of failure. Sorry, I got those words back to well, Dave, Dave, the thing, of course, you know, freedom of speech is one of the vital freedoms and the movement needs to be open to criticism from sympathetic parties 
you yeah. can you can take or leave the criticism, partial, reject, debate, but no 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 self-respecting freedom movement can be closed to criticism. Surely, by yeah. definition, it should be yeah. should be hungry for a critical dialogue within the movement and with sober people outside, not people who are just you know despising and all that. And they exist, obviously. That's right. Hundred uh, percent right. Look, it's uh, it's exactly right. If if we're not prepared to uh, learn and improve, then we're we're doomed to repeat the same kind of outcomes. Um, so, like, I, I wanted to talk about other topics in this um, time, uh, but this topic needed uh, the time we've given it, um, and even then, we've probably been been fairly brief um, and and skimming across the surface, but. Uh, I don't know if you're uh, available um, on a more regular basis. I'd love to get into examining some of these other topics, especially. Um, well, anyway, you, you frequently have good sober thoughts that are, that are worth considering um, and taking on to improve the strategy. I think a point I wanted to make, which had just briefly left my mind, is that so much of the activity, um, Facebook posts, posters, uh, and and strategies that um we tried to promote in the freedom movement uh, had zero chance of speaking to anybody who didn't already agree with us um, the the conversations were were so out there that they they simply um, repelled anybody who didn't already agree uh, and I think the perfect example is the obsessive compulsive, uh, um, focus on the constitution um, and whether or not it had been subverted or perverted, uh, and, and people are getting into in incredibly technical details and and thinking that we're going to change the nation. But the point is, the point I'm making is the only people who were listening to that were people who already agreed, um, and and what I want to do is change the minds of those people who are not already on our side but who are open to a good argument and, and a good um, education on these things. Um, obviously, there's some people on the far left who will never listen no matter how much sense you make and no matter how simple a point you make. Um, but to progress this movement, we have to give people the, the truths that they're going to be able to chew and swallow and own instead of more than they can fit in their mouth, choke on and, and go away with no benefit whatsoever. Um, and I think that's exactly the point you're trying to make, um, is that when we're trying to persuade people of points that are impossible to persuade them of, we're just wasting our energy. And we have to look for the, the points that we can advance. And, and I think if I can summarize what you're saying, to focus on the fact that freedom is precarious and precious and, and, to, and should be protected is a more easy sell uh, than the notion that Australia is totalitarian or authoritarian. I mean, related to this, Dave, is the conspiracy point. And I, and I, you know, I hear what you say earlier about obviously one person's conspiracy theory is another person's conspiracy without the theory bit because they're convinced <laughs> for them it's not theoretical. So right. there's an asymmetry here when it comes to conspiracies. And of course, conspiracies are real and they exist and they they occur my lights just went off i don't know if you want me to turn those back on or just carry on like nothing happened even though i've just pointed to it but 
<laughs> we'll pretend nothing. Much, no <laughs> it's the end of the show. If they're still watching, they're here for the last yeah, yeah. 30 seconds. Yeah, yeah. So, of course, there's this asymmetry, but the asymmetry is actually important here. And it goes to your point of intelligibility. And then there's a, if I may, possibly this is unwise to do this analogy, but I'm, I'm writing an article on public theology at the moment. And a, and a big, there's a challenge in public theology, which is very real. The, the discipline, the, the, the discourse hasn't really solved it, but it's useful for drawing out this, this problem, which is how does a church, which has its own idiom, the Trinity, the incarnation, um, you know, eschatology, apocalypse, hamartology, soteriology, it's got this distinct theological idiom that is not spoken outside of the, the church. Mm. A lot of it's not even spoken outside of academic theologians. So how does this church then speak into a secular society that does not understand this language? And so what they've come up with is concepts of bilinguality, which is a you know, crappy-sounding academic term, translation. But the, the point, I, the reason I mention that is they understand that you can't just address your this audience in an idiom they don't speak and they don't understand. Now, the problem when you see a whole bunch of conspiracies that are only theories for other people or completely just like they've never even heard of them, when you keep talking about this stuff, it sounds like an esoteric mystical language to your mm. average person. They're like, what? I mean, what's this international organization? I've never even heard of this international organization. You're telling me this, that, and the other about it. So you've lost like 80% of your people there. This is why I say go go to the stuff that's intelligible. And people can understand freedom. They can understand lockdowns. They can understand masks. They can understand vaccines and mandates. This is why I always thought the mandate, I mean, I thought this was a shame of the movement. I think there's a very compelling argument particularly once Omicron hit the scene, it was kind of a, a layup, really, to argue, look, and if and, I, and I've had this debate with, with people, you really push them to justify why a teacher should lose their job when everyone in the school who's twice, thrice vaccinated is getting COVID anyway, and at the end of the day, you, you take your own risk, and, and society's open now. So as a policy choice, we're letting the virus circulate with very few measures to try and spread to curb its spread. Mm. I mean, on what basis is it just <laughs> to deny someone employment in a school where yep. every second child's got COVID and all the teachers have had it at least yep. once? That's a powerful, compelling argument, but it was drowned out by this stray, strange Aztec-like language. And, of course, it's, it's completely meaningful and obvious to the small group that shares that he's convinced that this is not a theory but a conspiracy. But what they don't realise is they're speaking a tiny little dialect, only spoken by a small number of people in Australia and some people overseas, and that allows them to communicate. They can have very effective conversations about this world they inhabit. But there's no... I mean, personally, I think most of these are wrong, and that's a whole other discussion. So I'm, I'm just looking at this objectively. This is why I'm saying... <laughs> I'm just looking at it almost like a political consultant. You can't afford for all this constitution stuff. I mean, what Australian knows what is in the constitution, let alone is going to be uh, interested in 
you know, changes here and perversions there. Talk about the yep. stuff they do know. Everyone knows about the shutdown of businesses, and a lot of people know someone that's been been affected. You know, my brother's a wedding photographer in Melbourne. His business still hasn't fully recovered. So yeah, most people know someone. You 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 can really draw people to the concrete costs of the measures then have a discussion about proportionality and balance and then we can talk about some of the characteristics of the virus and you don't even need to go to the outliers on the virus there are there are very reputable voices questioning aspects of the the various policies and there are academics looking at the at the links there's a lot long way for this to run and i suspect we'll get a better picture in in the years to come now i'm not saying this will solve everything and this will make the you know this movement will be running the country. I'm, in a way, I'm just trying to explain why I think it failed to get the traction it could and point to some things, some, if you like, strategic and tactical errors. And this applies to all political movements. I think this is what the climate change movement has had to learn. You have to sell this to the average person who's not interested in the science, who doesn't know about the coal industry and this and that. It's all just a bunch of words and language. And telling them they're going to die in the next five minutes is not the way to do it. You need you need a sane <laughs> sort of common denominator. This is, I think this is how all politics is, is won and lost, actually. This is why the major parties always move to these kind of, for those who are really interested, dissatisfying kind of common denominator policy questions because they've got to speak to the largest number of voters possible mm. in a short space of time, like a six-week campaign. Anyway, yeah. that's my two, two cents for what it's worth. It's really great advice. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I mean, we've we got to take it on board and simplify the communication because if the goal is being active, um, that's one thing. Uh, maybe we should, instead of aiming to be activists, aim to be effectivists, um, <laughs> not just be active but be effective. Um, and... Yeah, that, that's uh, a, a a sober counsel um, that I, I appreciate the advice of. And for everybody watching, um, I guess take it or leave it. You don't have to agree with it. But uh, surely if we want to be effective, then we consider all sincerely given advice. Uh, from I think it's worth debating. If nothing else, it's worth debating, surely. Yeah, that's right. Let's have the conversation about it. Uh, maybe Jonathan's right. Maybe he's wrong. Maybe we can eat the fish, spit out the bones. Um, uh, so <laughs> rhetorical flourish for you, Jonathan. <laughs> uh, there have been a couple. I've appreciated them. <laughs> I, I feel it's beneath uh, the, the uh, lying harlot media, beneath dignifying with anything more credible than uh, insults uh, in the broad. <laughs> uh, credit to those members who withstand Jonathan, thank you so much for your time. Um, I'm keen to get you back more often um, because I, I think we, uh, people who are concerned with freedom and liberty and are rightly motivated uh, for the love of our neighbour and love of our nation, um, need to be capable of self-reflection and, and honest analysis um, as often as possible um, for our own strengthening and, and for the benefit of the objectives uh, that we're sincerely pursuing. So thank you for your time again. Oh, it was great to be with you, Dave, and a lot of fun as always. Awesome. Uh, stay there, and I'll join you after the recording in just a minute. 
For everyone else, thank you for sticking around. Uh, you've watched this whole video uh, because you've come to the website or because you're already a supporter of The Good Source. Thank you to The Good Source supporters and my personal supporters for uh, putting your hands in your pocket for $10, $20, $50 a month. It's really appreciated and we can't continue to do this work long term, let alone grow without you. Uh, I've been able to, because of your support, start hiring people, actual formal employees, not subcontractors or freelancers or, or um, volunteers, but actual people to come into the office and, and help uh, with the constant workload. Um, so uh, to those volunteers and supporters who help us keep doing the work, thank you very much, very much appreciated. If you'd like to become a supporter, head to goodsource.news forward slash support. That website is also where you will be able to sign up for our weekly newsletters, which hopefully come out every Wednesday. That's goodsource.news and uh, look forward to seeing you there. But that's it for this episode and we will see you later. Bye. Today, we need a special kind of courage, not the kind needed in battle, but a kind which makes us stand up for everything that we know is right, everything that is true and honest. We need the kind of courage that can withstand the subtle corruption of the cynics so that we can show the world that we are not afraid of the future.